Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. Um, How many maybe now or at one time in your life consider yourself a gardener? Or enjoyed gardening. I, I get some immediate shaking a heck no. There, I kill anything that comes. Uh, but but there, there's some in here. It's funny. It seems like that culture sort of now has sort of reinvigorated this, this need or this want to, to have a garden, to grow things, have your own produce. And, and now if, if you have chickens, you have to hire security um, to make sure that they're alive because of how much you have to pay for eggs. Hopefully that's going to go down. Um, so if, you are, if you're into that and you've got chickens, man, you're, you're sitting on gold. Um, but, but anyway, uh, I, I remember growing up, my, my papa always had a garden. And I remember two main crops. And he'd grow other things, but there were two main crops Two main plants, and somebody's already saying it. Two main things that he grew every year. What's the first one? Tomatoes. Tomatoes. And the second one, maybe, maybe you did this. He would grow watermelon. So tomatoes and watermelon. It, it was always funny to me, because every one of you started saying tomatoes. You, you go through the process, you grow them, and then you got to get rid of them. But when you go to your neighbor, you're like, well, yeah, i got a mess of these too. What am I going to do with them? And so everybody had this just like abundance of tomatoes, but you still you had to grow tomatoes. I remember getting in trouble when we would use those tomatoes as, as sort of um, grenades um, and have, have fights with them in the yard. He, he didn't care for that too much. But, um, but, but gardening, it's tough, isn't it? You have to fight some things. Weather. You got to know when to plant. You got to know when to cover them up in case a frost comes late. You got to take care of that. Weeds. You got all these things coming and and fighting, fighting to keep these plants alive. And we know who to blame, right? Adam and Eve. You go back to the garden, and when they sinned, What did God say to them? He said, your punishment for this sin is that the ground is going to be cursed and you're going to eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. So that's who we have to thank for how hard it is to garden. And many of you know this if you've had any experience gardening, but but you don't just plant a seed and then walk away and then come back and collect the bounty, right? No. There's watering. There's weeding. There's fertilizing. There's tending that must be done. But there's something else I want us to point out that's going to come back to what we have to talk about today. Do we have any control in creating the fruit? No. We work with the conditions. We, we make sure that the conditions are ripe, but we have nothing to do with how much fruit is produced. It's all laid in the power of that seed, right? So we just make sure that the conditions are around it. But the power to produce that fruit is embedded in that seed. 
We have no hand in what fruit is produced. And so it is with the kingdom of God. We're not called to save people. That's his job. He simply told us, he said, go. Get your hands dirty. Make sure the conditions are right. Plant the seed. But he will be the Lord of the harvest. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. That he is the Lord of the harvest. And so this morning we come to another end of another chapter in our journey through the book of Matthew. And not only are we going to be seeing that it's the end of a chapter today, we're also going to see that that sort of an end point to this first season of ministry, if you will, for Jesus. So let's get into the text and let's see what Jesus is doing. So if you take your Bibles or if you have it on your device, turn to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to be at the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 9. We're just going to look at four verses this morning, verses 35 through 38. And for today and for next week, I'm going to say, I want you to follow along while I read aloud. But before we get to the scripture today, I want to talk about something real quick. Take just a moment and talk about an upcoming change that's going to happen in our worship services starting in the month of February. I've spent time praying, just asking the Lord how we conduct our services and what we do and how we worship together on Sundays. And one of the things I've felt the Lord leading is to provide more opportunities for you as a congregation to be involved. So starting at the beginning in February, I'm going to add another element to our worship service, and I'm going to ask you to be a part of it. So here's what it's going to look like. We're going to shift where we read our passage of Scripture for our sermon. So for the past, I don't know, I've been here, what, a year and a half? It'll be two years in May. Here's how we've done it, just like we did it today. I would talk through an introduction. Then I would ask you to turn to a passage of scripture, then we would read it together, and then we would go on. But what I want to see, again, is more opportunities for you as a congregation to help us in worship. And so starting in February, we're going to have one of you read our passage of scripture together. So here's what it's going to look like. We're going to, everything's going to be the same, just like JJ did today. We're going to sing our third song, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to shift the talking about tithes and offerings to JJ. And then when he's finished, whomever it is for that week, they're going to come, just like we do call to worship, stand and read the passage. And you may be wondering, like, well, why, why, why do this? What, what does this matter? Why, why do you think that, that this is something that we should do? And again, I, I want to just take a teaching opportunity here for just a second. I think there's two reasons why this is important. Number one, I believe it's important for all of us to realize that all of us are involved in leading worship together. This again, this is why each week we have someone come up and read the call to worship. This is why we have different people lead in music. And and we do this to be reminded that our worship services are a time of participation. 
not spectation. You see that? Our worship services are intended for participation, not for us to be spectators. We're not here to be entertained. I promise you, there are plenty more places you could be to be entertained this morning. So if you're coming here to be entertained, you're in the, you're in the wrong spot. This is not a place for us to come and just watch church happen, okay? We are here to worship. We are here to sing, to pray, to read scripture. And by having you take part in that, what it does is it gives you an opportunity to join in worship together and to declare the truths of our faith. So that's the first reason. There's a second reason that I believe that this is important for us. My hope is that we will see that it is all of our responsibility to declare the word of the Lord. It's all of our responsibility. It's not just the pastor's job to to read scripture and to declare scripture. It is all of us. Now listen, I understand that there are some who are more comfortable in front of people, and there are some who are not. I, I get that. But as we see in our passage today, all, all, say all, all, say that means me. Oh, I didn't get much of it. Say that means me. That means me. All of us, if we have professed Jesus. All of us are called to go to our neighbors and the nations. So, by having you participate in reading scripture during our service, what it does is it helps you gain courage. It helps you to gain boldness in being comfortable with reading and sharing scripture with our neighbors and the nations. And what better place and practice speaking opportunity, speaking the word of God than with our brothers and sisters that all love us. And so if you are called on to read that scripture, if we have you doing it that day and you flub a word, we're not going to give you 10 lashes. If you get a passage that's a bunch of names that you're like, how am I supposed to pronounce this? We're going to give it to you a week in advance. And even still, if you mess up reading those names, we're not going to call you down. But what this is going to do, it's going to provide an opportunity for you, the ones who are called to go to your neighbors and the nations to, to be comfortable reading Scripture, to be comfortable speaking the truths of God's word. And if you're getting comfortable doing it around friends that love you and that want to hear you read the truth, how much more will your boldness build as you are sent to your neighbors and the nations? And if you have a regular practice of reading scripture in front of people here, how much easier might it be for you to read scripture or to talk about Jesus to your neighbors and the nations? So I I wanted to take this just moment this morning to give you my heart behind that, to teach a little bit about why that's important. It's not just something we're going to do just because maybe another church does it or it's something. No, I, I think it's going to be helpful for us as a body of believers to gain our boldness and to gain our strength. 
All right, we'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the service, but I wanted to, to just give us that opportunity to hear the why behind why we might be doing something like that. So for this week and for next week, we're going to say it like this. You in your either copy of God's Word or your device, read along while I read it aloud. And, and I, I threw this in there too. Someone asked, well, does that mean I'm going to be asked to pray after I read the Scripture? No. What we're going to ask you to do is after we read the Scripture, we're going to simply, we're going to practice it today. You will say, this is the Word of the Lord. And then we as a congregation are going to say, thanks be to God. Very simple. So we're going to do that when we read our scripture today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and they were dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful as we prayed this morning before our service, that you have called broken vessels to display the glory of your gospel. And I ask this morning that you use this broken vessel to do just that, to display your truth and your goodness. May all focus and eyes be pointed to you and not to me. Would we see who you really are and who you have called us to be as followers of you. May your gospel message ring true this morning. And where those are hearing it for the first time, would they profess you to be Lord and Savior? For those who have professed, would they hear this, this words this morning that you have given for building up, for encouragement, for correction? All those things you do by the power of your spirit when your word is spoken. We ask that you would do that in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't have this up there, but for last week, if you remember, verse 34, if you've got it in front of you, you can see that the Pharisees were mocking Jesus because he was casting out a man, a demon that was possessing a man. And so the Pharisees said, oh, he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. And I think it's important for us to, to start there and remember that because they basically just said Jesus is getting his power from Satan. And that's how he's able to perform these miracles. And I'll be honest. If I were Jesus, it'd be tough for me to hear that. It'd be tough for me because I, knowing that he had just laid down and set aside his godness in the sense of being willing to come to earth. He still was God, but he became man. He was willing to set aside that for us. And the reason I'd say it'd be tough for me is because if someone would, would rise up against me like that, my, my initial response would be to just prove them wrong. 
get in their face about it, or just quit. But instead of lashing back, instead of firing back with him, he had plenty of ammo with the Pharisees that he could have fired back with. But instead of doing that, we see him return the accusations with kindness by going to all the towns and all the villages, teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, I, I was doing some study this week, particularly about that, and, and I'm just going to be honest. I wrote down this quote, and I forgot to write down who I, who, what book and where I'd gotten it from. And I tried to go back at the end of my week and go, man, where did I get that? And I couldn't find it. So I'm going to read this. It's not my work. This is not my words, but I honestly don't remember where I got it. But, so I put unknown at the bottom, but just, just know this is important, and I think we should hear it. It says, if someone falsely accuses you and you quit, then you are working for man. But if you are working not for man, but for God, and then false accusations, they just roll off your back and you continue to serve. And that's what we see Jesus doing. He knew that the accusations that the Pharisees were giving were false, and he could have risen up and tried to prove himself right then, but he didn't. He just said, no, I'm just going to let that roll in my life, and my continued ministry is going to speak louder than anything I could say in that moment. And again, in verse 35, we see him continuing going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Does this verse sound familiar to anyone? It's okay if you don't remember. It's been a while. But as I mentioned in the introduction, this is sort of, think about it as the end parentheses of the first part of Jesus' ministry. Because if you remember, and this has been, again, several, several months ago, um, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, this verse is almost verbatim. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see that very first thing, him going to Galilee, teaching and preaching and healing. So we saw it in verse 4, which, all right, I'm going to do it backwards because you guys are looking at me. So we saw it in verse 4 as the begin parentheses. And then in, verse, in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see the end of chapter 9 sort of be the end parentheses of this first section of Jesus' ministry. And what some scholars have called it, it says, this first uh, semester, some even said, this first time of Jesus' ministry was focusing primarily, focusing primarily on teaching and healing. Some have called it the word and the work ministry. And then starting next week, we're going to see a shift in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Jesus talking more about mission and about who he is and the person of God. But in this first sentence, I want us to see this key aspect of Jesus' ministry. The first thing it says is, he continued going. He continued going. This is where we get the second part of our mission that's printed on the front of your bulletin that says we are called to go to our neighbors 
and the nations. It's, it's not just a fun saying that we came up with. It's because it's exactly what we see Jesus doing. Now, he very well have, could have done like most kings done, set up his throne in a central place and say, here I am, I am God. If you want to come to me, then you figure out how to get to me. And if you look at all the other world religions, that's how they're all set up. You have this unapproachable, unrealized, unable to get to God that is set up in the highest heights and the whole person following that God, their whole life is set to try making this trek to try to get to them. That's not what our God did. Our God came to us. Our God continually goes during his ministry. He is going and as well, we are called to go. We're not called to wait. We're not called to wait until people just come to us. We're called to go. Notice where Jesus went. All the towns and all the villages. He didn't just go to the city. He went to the villages too. That means that everyone mattered to Jesus. People with high incomes who were able to live in the city, in the towns. People with low incomes who lived in the villages. People of power, but also people in the streets. There was no one outside the bounds of Jesus' love and his ministry. He went after them. He went after them all. And that means that we should too. This means that we are to go to those who look different than we do. This means we are to go to those who have nothing to offer us. That we are to go to those who maybe we wouldn't see in our normal circles. And, and I want to be clear. We are also called to go to those who are like us. But if we only go to those who we are most comfortable with, if we only go to those who look like us, we're not doing the going that Jesus did. Jesus went to all. He went to all the towns and all the villages. It says he went teaching in the synagogues, preaching good news of the kingdom. Now, you've got to remember the culture in this time. See, the synagogues were the place where everyone gathered. So don't think of it as he just went to church, to church, to church, and he was an itinerant preacher, and he just held revivals and just went and talked to church people. That's not what that means. Jesus went to where the people were gathered. He went to the synagogue, which was considered the city center in that time and in that day. Now, there were people who did come to worship, but they also, there were people who came to do business. There were people who came to find out what the gossip was, what was happening around town. They came for community. And we too, we will always practice teaching and preaching in our churches, but the church is not the only place where we're called to teach and to preach. And I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about all of us. 
The church is not the only place we are called to teach and to preach. We should, just as we see Jesus doing here, be proclaiming the good news of the gospel where we do business. We should be proclaiming the good news of the gospel in our marketplaces. Now, some of you may be thinking, so I'm just supposed to stand in the aisle of the grocery store with a bullhorn and yell at people as they go by the cereal aisle, repent or be damned forever? I'm never going to say no because Jesus can use whatever means he uh, will to get the gospel across. But I'm going to say that probably that's not what that looks like. So don't go make a run on bullhorns, okay? I know I tell you this every week. We read it at the beginning of our service, and at the end, I always end with, now go to your neighbors and the nations. And some of you may have just been asking the question, like, what does that actually mean, Pastor? <laughs> well, like, you say that a lot, but like, what, what does that actually look like to go to my neighbors and the nations? Are, are you telling me that I'm supposed to go to my kids' or my grandkids' ball games and stand up and teach and preach in the stands. Again, pr probably not the way that that sounds. But think of it like this. You're at your kids or your grandkids ball game. The first thing would be to do might be to introduce yourself to those who are sitting around you. Cuz you're going to see them week after week after week, right? You're going to sit in the stands with them if your kids or grandkids are on the same team. So you're going to be in proximity with them week after week after week. So the first step is just, hey, that's my kid. That's my grandkid. Which one is yours? Very, very simple introduction. And as you become more acquainted and, and as, as, as sort of, you know, walls are dropped and conversations begin to happen, I guarantee you it won't be long before people start telling you all sorts of things about their lives. Things you want to know, things you really probably shouldn't know. People love to talk about themselves. I promise, people love to talk about themselves. So a simple introduction, a simple warmthness from you sitting on the stands would be the first thing. And so as those conversations grow, maybe one of them mentions how they're struggling because they just lost a loved one or a family member. And see, in those moments, rather than just sort of heaping on and just saying, yeah, it's bad, isn't it? I think you can say, you know what? I hear you talking about the pain you're experiencing. I know exactly what that feels like. I just lost my son, or I just lost my daughter, or mom, or, or whatever, and, and, and I'll tell you, the pain is heavy, but you know how I was able to get through it? I had a loving church family that came around me and supported me when I felt like I had no, nothing else to give. Do you, do you have that? Do you have a church family? Or, or maybe, you know, I was able to get through it because I knew that my mom or my mom, my grandmother or my son or whomever, I knew that they had put their hope in Jesus. And so, yeah, right now it's hard and it hurts, but I know that one day I'm going to see them again. That's a very simple way to go to your neighbors in the nations. 
Very simple. But it starts with that simple introduction and that warmthness and then just being there in conversation. Or, or it could be that they start talking about how anxious they are about a certain situation. Maybe they're even being bold enough to say how anxious they are about the things that they see happening on the news or the things that they see happening in the world. And instead of heaping on and just saying, yeah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, maybe we offer hope. And you go, man, I, I get it. I see the things that are happening in the world, and honestly, it makes me anxious, too, to know that my kids or my grandkids are living in that kind of reality. And sometimes I don't want to go to sleep at night because it keeps me up. But you know how I am able to get to sleep? I put my anxiety and I put my kids or my grandkids' lives out of my hands and into the hands of a Heavenly Father who loves me and loves them and it is going to help them and be with them. Does that even, do you see how simple that is? I think we overcomplicate it so many times. And it's a very simple way to share the hope of the gospel. And you know what? Sometimes if you do that and you step out and you're like, man, I'm going to try this, some people may just go, no, nah, I don't believe in that or that. What have you lost? Nothing. But what if you took the courage to make that kind of a statement with that kind of a person and they come to know Jesus? What have you won? What have they won by simply you going to your neighbors and the nations? That's what that looks like. That's what that looks like. It doesn't have to be so hard. It also says that Jesus was healing every disease and sickness. And, and so Jesus' ministry, we know this, was, was followed by healings to validate by a physical sign that he is the Messiah. And we, we see that he is preaching the kingdom of God. And so what that means is, is he is showing, not only by proclamation, but also by example, that the kingdom of God holds no sickness and holds no pain. And what he is doing in this, it, by healing the people who are around him, is he's giving them a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. He's giving them a glimpse of what it looks like here on earth, what it will be like to live with him forever, with no sickness and no pain. And, and we believe that he still heals today. We believe that just as we see him doing, that we still pray and we still ask him to heal today, to show us as a reminder that his kingdom is coming. And one day we will be rid of this world of sin and forever will be at whole with him. Look at verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds... He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. I think we need to stop right here and ask ourselves, when we look at the world, do we have the same response as Jesus does here? When we see the world full of sin, full of hate, 
full of accusations, do we look down upon them and just say, serves you right? If you would just be good like me and know how to act, then all of this would be better. Or instead, do we see as Jesus did and have compassion? Do we even know what it means to have compassion? Compassion moves us. Compassion is not a passive feeling. Compassion evokes action. See, when we have compassion for someone... We have sympathetic or even empathetic pity and concern. That word compassion is derived from a Latin word, passio, which means to suffer. And the prefix, C-O-M, means that we are saying that we are together. Community, C-O-M. Compassion, same prefix. So what does that mean? We take the C-O-M in the front that says suffer, or it means together, and we take the, the compassio to suffer. It means together we'll suffer. Together we will suffer. That's what compassion means. When we have compassion for someone, it says we will suffer with you when you're suffering. And not just stand aside and look and tell you just to be better or get better. Again, compassion is not a detached emotion or a feeling. Compassion brings you into the person's situation or feeling. When we have compassion, listen, when we have compassion for someone... We don't interpret their situation through our feelings or our experiences. Because if we've never had those experiences to be the same, or we've never had those feelings to be the same, our feelings and our experiences only go so far. But when we try to put ourselves in their situation, the first thing we'll do is we'll listen rather than assume. We will listen rather than assume. We will quit jumping to conclusions so quickly and instead Spend time with them, just like we see Jesus doing. And if we will commit to having compassion for our brothers and sisters, our pride will melt away. And our need to be right will wither, but our compassion will grow and grow and grow. Let's take it even a step further. Compassion isn't afraid of losing something. Compassion isn't worried about maintaining a position. 
Compassion isn't worried about keeping the upper hand. Compassion lays everything down and says, even if I give up my position, I want to reach out and to help you and to love you. Now you may be thinking, well, that's going too far. Then what do you say to Jesus? What do you say to Jesus who laid his position down? What do you say to Jesus that says he did not consider his equality with God as something to be grasped? When we have compassion, we don't, compare, we don't, we don't care about position anymore. Jesus wasn't afraid of losing something. Jesus wasn't worried about maintaining a position. Jesus wasn't worried about keeping the upper hand. Jesus laid everything down for us. For you and I. And we should be falling on our faces before Him, thanking that He did, because if not, we would have nothing but hell in front of us. Jesus could have loved us from afar and said, I gave you the systems to see me. I gave you the sacrificial, sacrificial system. You should be able to interpret who I am based on all the things that I set up. But that's not what he did. He said, I gave you a way to see me, and yet I still came to you. I'm still coming for you. Jesus had compassion on us. This is why we see Jesus eating and spending time with sinners. Because he took time to listen to them. All the religious leaders were saying, why are you giving them the time of day? All the religious leaders were saying, don't you know who they are? And don't you know what they have done? Why are you spending your time, if you say you are who you are, why are you caring about them? You should be here for us, the upright, the right standing, the one who have Scripture memorized, who are standing firm in what you've said. No, Jesus said, you don't need me, they do. Are we willing to give it all? We've been given everything. Are we willing to give it all? If we spend time with those who are suffering, if we will spend time with those who are being outcasts, if we will spend time with those who are marginalized, instead of filtering everything through our own lenses, we will start to see what it really looks like to be followers of Jesus. And we'll begin to show some compassion the same way that we see Jesus showing it. And if believers around the world would understand this, the church would become more and more like Jesus than ever before. But we're afraid. We're afraid what our compassion will cost us. 
I'm so thankful that Jesus wasn't afraid what it cost him to save us. Jesus looked at them and said, there's sheep without a shepherd. I think we so quickly forget. We're sheep. (laughs) We're sheep. We want to look down on non-believers. And we forget that we still act like sheep sometimes. We have been given the greatest gift in the universe, the saving grace of Jesus, and yet we still act like sheep and run back to sin. I've said this many times, but but at least the world doesn't know any better. At least they don't know any better. They're just living as they are expected to live. And they are living as we should expect non-believers to live and to act like anything other than non-believers. We should not expect them to live anything but selfish, sin-filled lives. And so rather than than spending all of our time looking down on the non-believers and make us try to feel better about ourselves, mind you, that's what the Pharisees did. And we're notorious for, but instead, would we judge our own hearts? And we, would we see that, man, we have been given the truth, the knowledge of who Jesus is, and we have professed him as Lord and Savior. And rather than trying to track down all the sins of the non-believing world, why don't we look at ourselves and go, man, I know the truth, yet why do I still run back to that sin? I know the good news of the gospel, but I still want to find my comfort in this. If we'll commit, again, to examining ourselves before we try to fix everybody else, (laughs) I promise you the church will look more and more and more like followers of Jesus. The last two verses... 37 and 38, he said, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Here's the encouragement this morning. Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful. He said, the harvest is abundant. The fields are ripe with fruit. And even more beautiful than that is the fact that the Lord, we have said it this morning, he is guaranteed a harvest. He has guaranteed us that when we go to our neighbors and the nations, now maybe not everyone we talk to will believe, but there will be some. There will be some. Jesus has guaranteed that those who he has made ready to bring into his kingdom, in his providence, are there. 
And even so, he chooses us to be the ones to go gather the harvest. He chooses us to bring in the harvest. John 6, 37 says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. And a few verses later, in verses 39 through 40, he says this. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The harvest is abundant because, as we said in the beginning, when we're gardening and tilling the field, we're not responsible for the fruit. The fruit is held in the power of the seed. It is our job to go and tend the ground. But Jesus says the workers are few. The harvest is ready. But the workers are few. Now, I believe there are several reasons why the workers are few. But I think the main reason, and one of, if not the main reason, as we've already said it, is because in order to be a worker and to go into the field to collect the harvest, the first thing Jesus says to us is that we have to die to self. It's not about us anymore. He said, take up your cross and follow me. We must die to self in order to be a worker. We must put ourselves out there. We must get our hands dirty. We have to fight against the weeds. And Satan is going to try everything he can to entangle the people who have not professed Jesus. He's going to send everything he can to blockade their way of professing the gospel. And when we start thinking about that, it's easy for us to lose our energy and lose our boldness. But mind you, remember what we just read in John 6. There's nothing Satan can can do to get in the way of those who God has called to himself and the harvest is there for us to collect are we ready to go are we ready to go to our neighbors and the nations because Jesus has saved a people for himself and so this morning JJ you can come on up We're going to do what Jesus commands us to do. What did he say in verse 38? Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And there's three things we're going to pray for. One, we're going to pray that the hearts of the workers would be stirred to go. I can stand up here until my life is over, until I have no breath in my lungs and say, go to your neighbors and the nations. But it will mean nothing and fall flat on you unless the Spirit of God quickens you in hearing that word and saying, yeah, that means you. 
And so that's what we're going to pray for. That the spirit of the living God would stir within all of us to go. And it says we're going to pray that the hearts of the workers would have compassion. Because if we send out workers into the harvest and there is no compassion with those that are sent, the world's going to look at us and go, you're just another person looking down on me trying to tell me to do better. No, we're going to get in with them. And and the thirdly is we're going to pray that the hearts of the workers would be willing to get dirty. So this morning, maybe for the first time, you've heard this this idea or this good news that Jesus has had compassion for you. And because he has compassion for you, he loved you so much that he said, I'm laying everything down, my position and everything, so that I can go to the cross and take your sins to the cross so you can be made free. And today, if you're hearing this and you know this to be true, my, my plea would be for you to confess your sin, to repent, and to believe that he has done this for you. But if you have professed Jesus, maybe we just need to start and say, God, I've lost my compassion. When I see people hurting When I see people in need, I filter it through these filters that I've built up in my head and go, well, that's what they deserve because of the choices that they made. Thank God he doesn't treat us that way and give us what we deserve for the choices that we make. And so as his workers sent out into the field, we are now called to have compassion just like Jesus did. So maybe this morning your prayer is, God, bring back my compassion Maybe this morning you're hearing, oh, this, this is what it looks like to actually go to my neighbors in the nations. Yeah, I've heard this being said every week, but, but now I get it. And so would you, would you pray that the Spirit would give you boldness to enter into those relationships, to have those conversations?